Well, if you take your Bibles and go to John chapter 9, John chapter 9, Monday, Stacy and I received some tough news in our life. We have a friend, Jeff Bunce, who died suddenly on, on Sunday evening. Jeff was 53 years old and was out bowling and had a heart attack. And so he was a, you know, you have in life, you have friends, and then you have a smaller list that's your good friends. And Jeff was a good friend. He and I knew each other quite well and uh, loved each other as brothers in Christ. And so when you receive that news, it, it hurts. Uh, yesterday, Stacy and I went down to Austin, and we uh, celebrated his life with his family and with friends and tried to express some words of comfort to his family. But through the course of the week, there's that temptation to ask why. You know, why a good guy like Jeff? Why early in life? You know, why, why does this happen? And you wrestle with that. And even though you know theological answers and you know truth and you know that every day is a gift from God and we need to appreciate the days we have versus the days we don't have and that he's with God in heaven, I think I, just like everybody else, wrestle with some of those questions of why. And, and I'm mindful that everybody in this room has a story like the one that I just shared. It might be somebody that's close to you that has passed away. Uh, It might be a sickness that you're dealing with in your own life. It might not even be health-related. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's relationship-driven. But there's some area of your life where you experience suffering, you experience injustice, and you're tempted to ask that question, why? Pain is the common denominator of humankind, and that is why everybody in this room can relate to the man that we're going to look at today. He was a man that had experienced a lot of suffering. The Bible begins his story in verse 1 of John chapter 9. It says, as he was passing by, talking about Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You can picture the scene in your mind. There's a mother and a father who welcome their little baby into this world. It's been an exciting journey, you know, finding out that she's going to be having a child and going through those months together, and now they have the birth, and they're so excited to hold in their arms their precious little boy. Uh, They take pictures. They post it on Facebook. All their friends are elated that this baby has been born. Family and friends come from all around the area to meet this little baby, and it's just a joyous time in the family's life. And then the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and mom begins to realize that something might not be right with her precious little son. He's blind. He can't see like most of the other children around. And in that culture where they live, there's a tremendous stigma on top of this, that if you're born blind or if you're born deaf, that you have no value to society, that you are just on the outskirts destined to live a life as a beggar. You see this disdain in his disciples who are unbelievably insensitive when they come across this blind man on the side of the street. Because the very first words they ask Jesus are, 
Who sinned? Did this man sin? Or did his parents? The assumptions that his disciples were making. This man's blind. Who did wrong, Jesus, that he was born this way? You know, whenever we make assumptions in life, it often makes us look very foolish. When we make assumptions in life, we often say dumb things and we spout off about stuff that we don't know anything about. I know I'm guilty of this a lot in my own life, and I'm sure you're guilty as well. We, we make assumptions and we start saying things and having thoughts and mindsets, and we don't even know the information, the details. Whenever I was growing up, I, I grew up in a very conservative um, segment of Christianity. And within that segment of Christianity, one of the things that we were taught was that the King James Version Bible is the only Bible translation that's to be used for the English world. And so I kind of assumed that anybody that used like the NIV or the New American Standard, I preach out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible today, but it didn't exist back when I was growing up. But I kind of assumed that anybody that read from those translations didn't really love Jesus. <laughs> you know, they weren't really right with God. And then I went to college and I started meeting people that, that uh, you know, they read the NIV and, and they were godly people. And so I thought maybe I had to buy me one. And so I bought me one. And I remember I was so fearful of how my parents might react. Mind you, I was a sophomore in college. It was during the summer. And uh, I would read the NIV by flashlight underneath my sheets at night in my bedroom. You know, seriously, true story on that because I was afraid of what, what dad, dad might say. But I discovered over time that, hey, my, my assumptions were wrong. I, in fact, I could actually uh, understand a lot of the Bible better than I had understood it before. And, and some of the thoughts I had about some of these other believers were, were really wrong. I was guilty of making those assumptions. Assumptions lead to a judgmental attitude within ourselves. And to the people that are the object of our assumptions, it can also lead to false guilt. This blind man, from the time he was a little boy, had probably been showered with this idea. You did something wrong. Your mom and dad did something wrong. The reason you're blind is because of their sin. He had no doubt grown up with all sorts of false guilt that had been piled on him. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve uh, this life. My parents did wrong. This is why I am the way that I am. False guilt had just been shoveled on top of him. Well, Jesus responds to his disciples, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about that God's works might be displayed in him. Then Jesus says, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Light and dark, blind and seeing, okay? Catch that parallel. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Now, to put the whole passage together, uh, when you have Jesus talking about 
doing the works while it is still light. I am the light of the world. The miracle actually illustrates what Jesus was talking about in the section ahead. Now, I want to deal with a practical question right here, and that is, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And I want, I want to give you five answers to that question uh, fairly quickly. So uh, we could go into greater detail on this, but uh, fairly quickly here, so, so pay attention, okay? The first is more of an overarching answer. And one of the reasons why there's so much suffering in the world is because the creation itself is broken. And really, that's the story of Scripture. There's, there's five major events that you see in Scripture that illustrate this. The first is the creation itself. God made all things, and after the creation, he looks back and says, this is good. There's a shalom, there's a peace, there's a unity of creation. And then you have sin enter into the world through Adam and Eve, and there's a domino-type effect that occurs because of the sin of Adam and Eve. There's a fracturing of creation so that now we live in a world that is broken, a universe that is broken, and we as individuals also have hearts that are stained by sin. So one of the major reasons why there is so much suffering and hurt and pain in this world is because the creation itself is broken and we live in this sin-stained world. Now, if you know the story of Scripture, you know that God did something about that. He so loved the world that he sent his son so that his son can redeem the human heart. And now we live in this fourth big section where there is the invitation for all to believe in the Son, and then the Scriptures end with the restoration when Christ comes again, and there is a new heaven and a new earth, and all things are made new, and the creation itself is restored. So one of the major reasons why you and I live in this world of suffering, or why we have so much suffering in this world, is because the creation itself is broken. Why doesn't God do something about it? He has in Jesus, and he will in Jesus again. That's the story of Scripture. God is doing something about the brokenness. Now, within that, we often experience hardship because other people sin. Think back to your childhood. A lot of us have gone through a lot of pain because of the sins of others. You experience this in the world around you today. You, you are not an island unto yourself. When somebody else does wrong, it affects other people. Uh, this afternoon, my daughter Karis and I are going to drive up to Oklahoma, so we've gotten our passports ready. We're ready to go across the Red River, uh, but we're going to go to Oklahoma, and, uh, and we're going to go to an ordination service. Uh, it's a really cool one because it's my high school track coach. My high school track coach is being ordained as a minister, and so I got an email out of the blue the other day, hey, could you come and introduce him at his ordination? I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. He, he was influential in my life, and so I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm there. But I remember Coach Mark, uh, he, he would put us through daily torture sessions, and, and we would run these several-mile jaunts. And, and one day as we were running, one of the guys decided to cut through the field and try to cut some mileage off, and he caught us. And he made the whole team go back to the beginning and run it again. Because, guys, if one of y'all shin, all y'all shin, okay? You know, that was, that was kind of his philosophy. And there's some reality to that. Whenever we sin, it, it affects other people. 
thirdly, we experience suffering whenever we do wrong as well. You know, there, the Lord says don't do this because he knows if you do it, it's going to hurt you. And there's going to be consequences for this. And so we experience suffering in this world because we do wrong as well. Now, the fourth and fifth reasons are, are a little bit more difficult for people. The fourth reason why you might experience suffering is because it's for your good. Now, in your perspective, it's suffering, but in reality, it's for your good. Let me give you an example. My, my little girls think they are suffering when I tell them they have to eat their broccoli. Okay? They think that that is weeping and gnashing of teeth, that that is true suffering. But I realize that they need to eat their broccoli because it's actually good for them. You also see this in exercise. You go out running or you lift weights and you have to go through some strain and some discomfort, but the strain and discomfort is actually building strength within you. And then a fifth reason, and this is the one that that folks sometimes struggle with, is that God wants to display his work through you. And that that was the case here with this man born blind. Jesus says it was God's will that he was born blind. God made him blind because he wanted to do a spectacular work in him. Listen, in every adversity, in every adversity that you face in life, there is always, always, always an opportunity. There is always opportunity in adversity. And part of being a maturing Christian is to begin to look for the opportunities that God is giving you in the middle of your adversity. It was a bad day when Ruth, from the Old Testament, lost her husband. She was widowed at a very young age. That was a bad day. Suffering had entered into her life. But it was also an opportunity for Ruth to begin a new life in Israel. Ruth would eventually establish a family with a man by the name of Boaz. Ruth would become part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. In the adversity, there was also an opportunity. It was a bad day when Jochebed took her little baby boy, Moses, and she put him in a basket, and she pushed him down the Nile River. But there was also an opportunity for God to do something great. Because God was going to deliver that little baby boy, Moses, via UPS Select to the Pharaoh's house. And the Pharaoh's daughter was going to take him out of the basket and raise him as a prince of Egypt. And then God had a plan for that young boy's life. He was going to become one of the great liberators the world has ever known. He was going to become one of the authors of Holy Scripture. Within the adversity, there was an opportunity. It was a bad day when David stood face to belly button with that big old nasty giant Goliath. There, it was a bad day. That guy was mean. But God had an opportunity there because he was going to take a little shepherd boy and turn him into a great warrior. And from that, God was going to build in David's life the circumstances that would lead him to being the greatest king that Israel ever knew other than the king of kings, Jesus himself. It was a bad day when the Romans took Jesus up to a place called the place of the skull and they drove nails into his hands and feet, but there was also an opportunity there for God to use the crucifixion of his son to redeem the world from their sin. Until the day 
of restoration, there will always be suffering. But within that suffering, there will always be opportunity. And part of being a maturing Christian is to learn to ask God, Lord, in the hurt, where are the opportunities? Where is the opportunity here for you to do a work of God, for you to be displayed within the pain? The story continues in verse 8. His neighbors and those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, Isn't this the man who sat begging? And some said, He's the one. No, others were saying, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. I'm the one. Therefore they asked him, Then how were your eyes open? And the man called, he answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and he told me, go to Siloam and wash. And so when I went and washed, I received my sight. Well, where is he? They asked. I don't know. He said. Now, I don't really have anything profound to say about this section of the story. I just think it's funny. I think this is great. I mean, his neighbors are like, uh, it's like he just returned from one of those extreme makeover shows or something like that. Okay, you, you look familiar, all right? Did you get a haircut or something like that? I mean, what, what's different here? And he's like, hey, it's me. I, you know, I'm, I'm the one. I, I, Jesus did something in my life. So the neighbors then say, okay, well, well you need to go to the priest to, to show yourself to them and show that you, you've been healed. So in verse 13, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. And the day that Jesus made mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Now, on the Sabbath day, you weren't supposed to do any work, according to the Pharisees. And because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, this was going to be the dun-dun-dun moment in the story, okay? So, so let's all make sure we're awake here. I'm going to read the story again. Let's add the sound effect of dun-dun-dun. Okay, y'all ready? Uh, the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. There you go. Y'all are rolling now, okay? So again... The Pharisees asked him, how did you receive your sight? How did this happen? He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed, and I can see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Now, what a reaction to the man's story. Well, it's obviously this man's not from God. But others were saying, wait, wait, wait a second. How can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And they asked the blind man, All right, you're the one that was healed. What do you say about him? He opens your eyes. And the blind man looks at him and says, He's a prophet. He's a prophet. Obviously, he's from God. I I can see. Now, don't miss the irony here because it is just dripping from this section. You have a blind man who had begged all of his life He probably didn't know much scripture. He was poorly educated. He was considered fringe. He was probably even a fan of Obamacare. Okay? This guy could see. Okay, he was able to see. Now, you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees have plenty. They know the scriptures better than anybody. 
They are well-educated. They are as conservative as you can be. They are disciplined. They were completely blind. They couldn't even see the work of God right in front of them. Here's a man who is blind that can now see. Could this be God? No, of course not. It couldn't be God. It happened on the Sabbath. Verse 18 says, The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned his parents, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. And they asked them, Is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees. And we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He, he will speak for himself. Now, why would his parents put him in that situation? Well, verse 22 gives you the answer. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of the Pharisees. And so out of fear, they pushed their son up there and said, let him speak for himself. Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. And this is why his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Now, what the parents do here bothers me. But what really nauseates me is the Pharisees. They were so blinded by their Sabbath rules. You can't heal on Saturday, Jesus. We have rules around here. Don't be doing the work of God on Saturday, man. They were so blinded by their rules that they couldn't even celebrate or believe a blind man who had been healed. The Pharisees had created such a culture of fear that this boy's parents were willing to throw their son under the chariot. Sorry, they didn't ride buses back then. They were willing to throw him under the chariot to avoid the wrath of the Pharisees. There's a major difference between the messages of Jesus and the Pharisees. The message of Jesus redeems people with grace and spreads through love. Jesus said, by this they will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. The message of Jesus redeems us through the unmerited favor, the amazingness of grace. God does something for us that we never deserved. He sends his son motivated by his love. He brings grace near to us. He redeems us through that grace. And that message spreads through the love of Christ into the world. The message of the Pharisees redeems people through rules and it spreads through fear. It tries to dominate people. Now, there's a lot of stuff out there these days that uh, is marketed under the Christian umbrella. And one of the things that I ask you to do is pay attention. I, I encourage you not to become that critical Christian that anybody that is just slightly different from you, you throw rocks at all the time. 
I mean, there's room for diversity within some areas of theology, some of the more minor areas of theology, but there's a lot of stuff out there that's just not healthy spiritually, yet it's marketed under Christianity. And there will be preachers and teachers that try to redefine and redirect you from grace. And what what they do is they try to move you from a Christianity that is anchored in grace, move you to rules. Because they want to dominate you instead of truly loving you. And when we take grace out of the equation, then we reduce Christianity, we water it down to another world religion. Because the major difference between Christianity and Islam and Mormonism and and all these other Hindus, all these other major world religions, is that our faith is anchored in the grace of God. God has redeemed me through his son. I didn't deserve it. He doesn't love me for my loveliness. While I was still a sinner, Christ loved me and sent his son who died for me. I am redeemed through grace. Grace is not just something I needed. It's something that I am still needing. And yet within the default sin factor of humankind, we're constantly wanting to move the faith away from grace and back to rules because there we can control. We can dominate. We can keep people under our thumb instead of unleashing them to experience the love of God and the Holy Spirit in their life. A godly preacher or teacher will lovingly remind you that the same grace that saved you matures you. The grace that saves you, that's the grace that matures you. Because they want you to be free. As Galatians says over and over and over again, if you've never read that book, read it. They want you to be free to love others as Christ loved us. Verse 24 says, So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered, Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. And then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Was it through sorcery? How did he do this? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Basically, the blind man, the former blind man's like saying to him, All right, so I can see that you can't see. Are you deaf too? Can you can't hear? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciples. But we're Moses' disciple. We know God has spoken to Moses. But this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. I love it. 
The former blind man's talking smack to the Pharisees. He's like, obviously he's from God. Look, he healed me. I mean, this is true courage. For 20, 30 years, he's been pushed aside within society. I'm making an assumption there. I understand the 20 to 30 years part, but I already preached on that. So for a long time, he had been pushed aside by society. He had been made to beg for food. Jesus heals him. There's not a chance he's going to back down. He's going to stand up for the one who changed his life. He's going to stand up for the one who allowed him to be able to see. Could you imagine how bold you and I could be if we were once blind, living in darkness, unable to free ourselves from our problem, but then God did something for us that we could never do? Could you imagine how courageous I could be if once I was lost, but now I am found, once I was blind, but now I see? Could you imagine how free I could be if grace my fears relieved? If, if I understood that it is grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home, could you imagine the impact we could have on our homes and our communities and our city and our state and our country and our world if we could live with that type of boldness and courageousness and, and realize, you know what? The same freedom that the blind man experienced, I've experienced the same freedom that the blind man, the same boldness that the blind man had, anybody that's been touched by the grace of God and has experienced the amazing grace of God can have in their lives as well. You see, people who see the world through Christ are kind of scary, especially to those that are still trapped in a selfish blindness. Instead of opening their eyes and seeing God, the Pharisees, unfortunately, returned to their darkest method. The method which had been tried and true for them was to be condescending, cruel, and to try to pile on more false guilt. And so they look at the man, and they say to him, you were born entirely in sin. You're just a sinner. You have no value. And you're trying to teach us? And then they threw him out. All of his life he had been told this. You're blind because of your sin, son. You're blind because your parents did something wrong. That's why God did that to you. You're worthless. God doesn't love you very much. He didn't even allow you to see. You're not welcomed in the synagogue. Yeah, your mom and dad, we'll let them in, but you can't come in the synagogue. You don't have any value in this society, son. You're just a beggar. Sit on the side of the road. Hope to get enough food to eat tonight. That's where you belong. On the fringe of society. Live your days and die. Nobody will miss you. All through his life, people had probably poured false guilt on him. Day after day after day. When God healed him and he became courageous, the Pharisees tried to return to that false guilt and started pouring it upon him once again. You're just a sinner. Who are you? 
to try to teach us. Get rid of them. Throw them out of them. Throw them out. Well, when Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and I love that part because evidently that got Jesus' attention, he found him and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? That I may believe in him. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. He became a worshiper of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords that day. You see, the man's day began in physical darkness, but it ended in sight. And the man's day began in spiritual darkness. But then he met the man who says, I am the light of the world. And it ended in eternal life. Look, Jesus didn't call him to understand it all. Everybody he had been encountering said, how did he do it? Jesus didn't say to the man, hey, tell me how I healed you. Jesus didn't call him to understand every aspect of theology. Jesus didn't even say, hey, go home and clean up all of your life and then become a worshiper. Jesus called the man to believe. He didn't humiliate him with false guilt. He just said, believe in the Son of Man. Believe in me. And the man said, I believe That was his salvation prayer. He didn't even take out a big pamphlet with the ABCs on it. He said, I believe. And he worshiped. His life had been changed and his soul had been changed. He had been touched by grace. And you know what? That's what Jesus calls you and me to do as well. Believe. Be a worshiper. Center your life on God. Start seeing the world through Jesus Christ. Let him be that one thing for which you live and die. It changes everything. When you start truly believing in Christ and worshiping him, then grace begins to grow within you. You begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness and want to study his word. You begin becoming a new creation. You come to worship and you see the word of God and it changes you. And it changes the way you live your life. You begin overflowing your life so that you want to serve and you want to make a difference in the world around you. You are a new creation in life because look here. You can see life through Christ when you believe. I ask you this question today as well. Has there ever been that time in your life where you believed? Where you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you can't say yes to that, I invite you today to believe. Believe in Christ. Place your faith in Him. We're going to have a time of commitment in just a few moments. I'll be here at the front. I usually stay in this room right after service as well, and I would love to talk to you. If you're at that point where you're needing to believe in Christ, come see me. I'll pray with you, and you can leave here today with a new lease on life, a fresh start as a believer in Christ. Let's stand together as we bow our heads and we come to a time of worship. The band's going to come, and they're going to lead us in song. And I, I want you to worship loudly.
sing praises to God, okay? If God's leading you to make a decision, if today needs to be the day that you believe in Christ, I'm here at the front, come see me. If God leads you to pray about something in your life, the altar's open for you to pray. Uh, If there's somebody sitting around you that God leads you to go to them and pray, go to them and pray. Hey, we've seen truth from God's word, and now as we sing, as we give, as we come to this time of prayer and worship, we're responding to God's word. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing. Lord, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. And I thank you for the story in Scripture that is just so clear that no one is beyond your reach. Lord, forgive us for those moments where we make those false assumptions and we have those judgmental attitudes. And Lord, help us not to live trapped by false guilt. Help us, Lord, not to be so captured by our rules and how we think it ought to be that we can't even see you in the midst of life. Help us, Lord, not to miss it when you're standing right in front of us and doing great work. Lord, help us to be people who believe. Lord, I wrestle, and I know everybody in this room wrestles with questions and things that we don't have total answers for, but Lord, help us to believe, to worship you, to pour ourselves into your greatness and realize that the same grace that saved our soul sustains our soul. Help us, Lord, to realize that even though we live in an unfair world, you are sovereign, and you will make all things new. You have and you will answer the problem of suffering. And for this, we worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen.